Welcome to Mortification of Spin, the casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This week, the crew talks with Michael Kruger about the canon of Scripture. Why do we have the books we have in the Bible? And is the entire Bible really the words of God? How confident can we really be? Let's join the conversation with Amy, Todd, Carl, and Dr. Kruger. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. The usual crew is here. I'm Carl Truman with my good friend Amy Bird and that other guy whose name eludes me at the moment. Uh, We're very privileged today to have as our guest uh, Professor Michael Kruger, who is president of Reformed Theological Seminary, their campus in Charlotte, and is also the Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity, and the author of numerous books dealing with the rise of orthodoxy in the early church, the nature and extent of the Christian canon, and is currently working on a book on the nature of Christianity in a very neglected century, the, the second century. So, great to have you with us, Mike. Thanks, Carl. Great to be with all of you. Great. Well, Good. I, we hope you feel that way. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Even the unnamed uh, one at the end of the table. Yeah. <laughs> so, I want to kick off with a question, probably the most important question we're going to mm. ask today. It's one that's been, been burning on us. Oh, yeah. Yes. What is it like to be married to Melissa Kruger? Oh, it is <laughs> quite an experience, I can assure you. Uh, well, fantastic. But uh, I, I get to now make fun of myself a lot being married to her because I cannot tell you how many times I've been at a conference. I'm the speaker. I give a talk. And you know how people come up to you after the talk, and regularly they'll come up and go, hey, I just got to tell you, your wife is awesome. <laughs> um, and they'll go on and on about her books and her writings. And I'm like, hey, you know, I, I, I've written a few books. So, uh, you, know, you might want to check them out. So I get to uh, make fun of myself. That's, That's good. Now. I get asked regularly what it's like to work with Amy Bird, and I say, well... <laughs> You got to work with what you can get. Right? <laughs> exactly. so, so. She's no Melissa Kruger. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. That's true. So, well, it's great to have you with us, Mike. I'd like to start off with a, I guess, a softball question before we get into more technical matters. You know, as well as being professor of church history, I pastor a, a local church in Ambler, Pennsylvania, and you're a specialist in the canon. It's a very technical area. It's also a very important area for distinguishing Protestants from Catholics not only because Catholics have a, a bigger Bible than us, they have more books in it, but also because the, the difference in the canon reflects fundamentally different understandings of authority and the role of Scripture in the church. The people in my congregation are generally speaking not technical theologians, but every maybe couple of times a year, somebody will come up to me after a service and say, be some variation on the theme of, okay, why do my Roman Catholic friends have more books in their Bible? Why, why these books and no others? Are you able to, to help me and, and our non-technical listeners by giving us maybe two or three things we could say in response to that to help ordinary Christian folk understand why we have the canon we have without getting bogged down in the kind of really technical stuff that a, that a guy like you deals with on a daily basis? Oh, yeah, that's a fundamental question, and there's sort of two audiences to interact with there. One is the Roman Catholic audience who wants to know why they have uh, more books or why we don't share the books they do. Uh, there's also the critical audience that doesn't think any of the books belong in the canon. Um, and so I usually try to distinguish uh, those two audiences for people. Um, you know, I think most questions people are get are going to be from skeptics who don't believe in the canon at all and think it was put together by Constantine in the 4th century or something like this. 
Uh, what I typically encourage Christians to do is to reduce the question down to something more manageable. When you talk about the whole canon and all the books, it gets overwhelming, and eventually you've got to get there. But I usually tell people to just start with the four Gospels. Um, why do we have four Gospels? How do we get four Gospels? And uh, are these the right ones? And this is, a, I think, a really tangible, concrete, limited way to talk about the issue out of the gate. Um, I'll be speaking this afternoon at this conference on that very subject, but what I tell people is that, look, the evidence for the fourfold Gospels is very, very good. The Church adopted it so early uh, that not only is it disputable that this idea that Constantine created the, the, the Gospels or created the canon later, but it also works against the Roman Catholic argument that the Church gives you the canon. Um, the fourfold Gospels there so early before any votes, before any councils, before any decisions. I tell my students all the time, look, when it comes to the fourfold Gospel, there was no—no no one picked them. No one chose them. There wasn't a decision. There wasn't a vote. Um, if you were to ask the average person in the second century why you chose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they would look at you strangely and go, what are you talking about? These are the books that have always been handed down to us from the, from the time of the apostles. So when you look at it that way, that narrowing it down to the four Gospels allow you to deal both with the higher critical questions and also the Roman Catholic idea, because you're looking at a, a, a uniformity around books that doesn't require a church declaration to get you there. And it shows you that it's the church not creating the canon, but really uh, recognizing the canon over time. That's really, that's really helpful. As a layperson, um, I think a lot of times congregants will see uh, you know, books like yours and think, you know, this is academic. I don't really, as a layperson, need to know about this. Um, you know, what is your argument then? You know, why is it an important topic for the average layperson to to learn about the canon of Scripture, um, its authority, and you know, to have a good apologetic for that? Yeah, great question. I think that is an intimidating subject for people. Uh, they they look at it and think, oh, this is sort of you know micro detail issues that you scholars handle. Let's not bog us down with that. But the fact of the matter is that the, the, the issues of canon are trickling down to the average person in the pew. And, uh, I mean, examples abound of this. I mean, whether you're watching a you know, PBS documentary or a History Channel or whether you're yeah. uh, looking at popular-level books that always seem to come out at Easter and Christmas or mm-hmm. uh, magazine articles. I, I told the story yesterday of, the, of my uh, Christmas Eve morning in 2014 where the cover story for Newsweek was, a, was an all-out attack on the Bible. What's interesting, when you look at all these popular-level directed attacks, they're— the canon is center of the of the, of the question. It's 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 an if you think about the New Testament's reliability, they're going to bring up the Gospel of Thomas. They're going to they're going to mm-hmm. bring up you know, alternate Christianities and alternate books. They're going to they're going to bring up disputes over books and debates. They're going to they're going to trot out the Constantine made the Bible argument again, even though yeah. there's no no proof of that. Um, and so what I tell people is that look, if you if you want to live in this world and 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 hide out, and never read anything or be exposed to anything, you, you might never have to deal with that issue. But the fact is, if you live in the world at all and communicate, you're going to be, it's going to be handed to you, and you're going to have to have answers. And I would think that, like, my understanding of the canon of Scripture affects how I receive God's Word when I read it, too. Yeah, uh, I mean, you've got the question of how you deal with challenges when they come your way, but also, when you hear sermons preached every week, you may think, right. do I really have a reason to think this is from God? And mm-hmm. it can bolster and reassure people that the Scriptures are trustworthy, and that really does help them receive the preached Word. Um, and uh, it, it bolsters their own Bible study of the, of the Word as well. Yeah. I remember when I was in seminary, one of the most boring topics, unfortunately, was the study of canonicity. And I've heard that from so many different seminarians from different seminaries. And so when I first discovered your 
your work, it was it was exciting because for the first time I, I began to see that it doesn't happen. In fact, it's a sin to make it boring. And part of it was practically in, in my role as a, as a youth pastor and then a pastor is I, I, I was struck by how many questions, you know, year, some years after I graduated from seminary, I was getting on canonicity. And I think a lot of it had to do with the rise of, you know, kind of Da Vinci Code theology. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and then, of course, Bart Ehrman. Yes. Um, as well. And so the the strategic... And the rise of the internet, I might exactly. add to that. Exactly. Just because everybody can pump out anything and say anything about the canon. And I have exactly. a whole category of what I call internet lore on canon, <laughs> 90% of which is completely, you know, wacko. And I want people to hear this. If you're listening out there, please hear this because the information you're getting about Constantine's role in completing the New Testament, et cetera, is so common. And yeah, it's fundamentally flawed. And my, my question for you as, as someone who is very invested in the training of seminarians. What are you finding about young seminarians, guys coming into the ministry, they're, they're going through seminary. Do you see much of a struggle among a lot of these guys in their level of, of confidence in the reliability, the trustworthiness of Scripture? Are you finding you're having to go back and, and help them with some of those fundamental things? My experience is that I don't see a change in the level of commitment to the authority of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might you expect that, and, and maybe um, we're shielded from that just in our confessional environment. Yeah. We're not seen as, as much of a drop-off in right. people's commitment to Scripture. What what's the drop-off is is any ability to articulate the grounds for their commitment to Scripture. So it's a little bit of a, of a of, I don't know if fundamentalism is the right way to think of it, but it's a little bit, well, I just believe this because I believe this, and I don't really have grounds for believing it. I, I wouldn't be able to articulate the reasons for believing it, but, but, but by golly, I'm going to believe it. And so they come into seminary probably without a whole lot of of, of rationale for it. And of course, that's one of our goals in seminaries, to give them that grounding. Right. But uh, I think there, there's, there's not anyone teaching this to people at an right. earlier level in their, in their educational exactly. journey. In fact, most people don't get it till seminary, and certainly if you never go to seminary, you don't get it at all. Right. And what I'm trying to tell these pastors is not only am I going to teach you some of this, but I need you to teach this to your congregations. Right. You've got to teach this to your lay people, mm-hmm. your college students, your high school students. This has got to be a topic that people begin to deal with. Yes. I just remember being um, just regular Christian, reading God's Word, and I think a lot of Christians ask this question maybe while they're um, studying God's Word, and that is, you know, were the New Testament writers aware of the fact that you know they were indeed supplying the New Testament mm-hmm. canon and the authority that they had mm. when yes. they wrote that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in fact, that misconception, and I think it is a misconception mm-hmm. to think that, that the authors didn't know what they were doing, is so widespread that I devoted an entire chapter to it in my most recent book, uh, The Question of Canon. So people's idea of the Bible is kind of this way. Well, Paul was a leader in the church and uh, you know, very influential, and he liked to write letters to people, pastoral letters to help, help them in their walks with Christ. And then many years later, the church began to collect these. And then many years later, the church began to really love these letters. And then they decided, you know, these would be great if we sort of made them scripture. And so then they, they declared that they were, and then they put them in the Bible, and then there you go. Yeah. And so it makes it look like Paul wrote something that people kind of hijacked later, and then okay. they used it for a purpose he had no intention for, and that Paul never knew what he was doing, and you just kind of write in books, and it's just an after-the-fact sort of imposition on, on books. That is fundamentally flawed on all kinds of levels. First of all, in terms of the the time period which books are regarded as Scripture, because we know in the first century itself Paul's letters were regarded as Scripture, right. but also is fundamentally missing Paul's intent. All kinds of statements in Paul's letters where he is very clear, what I'm writing to you is the Word of the Lord. If you, if a person rejects what I'm writing, then they're to be rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he calls down what is arguably a, a, a church discipline or what you might call a covenantal curse on somebody who rejects his words, 
even in written form, because they represent the words of Christ. And so I, I think it misses the fundamental role of the apostles, um, and also makes canon look like this distant, far-off, late hmm. creation of the church, and truthfully feeds the Roman Catholic right. uh, uh, narrative, which is that the church made the canon 300 years later. That's good. What about the layperson who knows a little bit of church history and says, yeah, but Martin Luther, great big hero, but <laughs> I downloaded Truman's lecture, and he mentioned that you know Luther says of James, yeah, if I had my will, I'd rip little Jimmy from the Bible and throw, <laughs> throw him in the fire. You know, if not even the fountainhead of Protestantism uh, held the canon that I hold, how can I be? How can I be sure that the Book of James is in the Bible? Yeah. Well, this this really is your question, Carl, about uh, <laughs> asked, I idiosyncratic I asked and strange comments of Martin Luther. Pa- Aren't Carl's you, uh, wanting you to hand it back yeah, over exactly. to him? Exactly. Uh, I mean. Luther said all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, I'm prepared in to line, say, right? Yeah. I mean, Luther's just wrong. I yeah. think that would be hard. Oh, he's undoubtedly wrong. I mean, Luther was a bit of a, of a firecracker of a guy. I mean, I think he uh, no doubt would say things that later in his more mature years he backs off of. And I think actually his opinion of James, and you can actually help me on this if, if I'm mistaken, but my, my, my memory of it is that he does back off to some extent his mm. criticisms of James in later years, yeah. particularly as he formulates the, the German Bibles and different things. But um, And so I think, you know, you've got a young guy in the throes of it yeah. with Roman Catholicism where justification is on the brain, yeah. and James at first glance doesn't look like it. But I think taking a step back, you realize that James does obviously play a canonical role that's very essential. And, and I would add also this, is that our determination of what's canonical is not beholden to individual opinions throughout the age of the church. Yeah. Um, you know, in my book, Canon Revisited, I argue the different ways to know what constitutes canon. Uh, one of those is apostolic uh, roots of a book. Uh, one of those is uh, the internal document or internal characteristics of a book, its, it's uh, uh, internal qualities. But then one other one is the consensus of the church around a book. Um, there is no doubt that throughout the age of the church, even though it has a wide consensus on these 27 books, that you have outliers mm. all over the place. There's outliers now. I mean, there's certain segments of the church in Ethiopia that don't accept parts of the canon. I mean, there's, there's uh, outliers all over the place that reject books uh, here and there. But, you know, looking at an individual or outliers is not an, uh, an accurate way to assess whether a book, a book is canonical, even if they're Martin Luther. Yeah, yeah. Good. Good. Michael, you um, we we were chatting about this before we started recording, and you became an, uh, a YouTube sensation recently. Um, <laughs> wow, I don't like the I don't like that phraseology. <laughs> I can have all kinds of baggage associated with it. But there was there's this really wonderful video of you of you it, 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 kind of dealing with the question of you know as as a student in college, you go in, you take a you know world religions class, yeah. and and goodness you know how, how do you how do you deal with the assault you know kind of on your faith where where did that come from in in your mind what what have you seen that has made that necessary and if, and if it's not too broad answer this any way you like right what's what's something that that our churches need to do to help those 18 year olds before they hit that freshman world religions or philosophy class yeah. and ha- and see their their faith rocked by just the simplest little questions or objections? Well, I would say this, first of all, that I think most parents are grandly naive about the things that their 18-year-old is getting ready mm-hmm. to face in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the college students themselves are naive yeah. about it. Um, and, and they have no idea of the intellectual, cultural, and worldview barrage that they're re- getting ready to undergo at uh, 
at a monumental level compared to whatever they dealt with most of the time in a high school situation. My experience was this way, and this was, you know, a long time ago. Um, you can't imagine it was, it's gotten better, it's gotten much worse. So when I was an undergraduate, I had Bart Ehrman as a professor mm. at UNC Chapel Hill. So here I was, a freshman student committed to Christ, walking with Christ, trying to be a faithful believer, and uh, I have no doubt that I was uh, converted and, and uh, doing my best. And then I took this New Testament class with Bart Ehrman, and it absolutely blew me away. Yeah. I had no answers. I had no perspective. I had no way to know what to do with it. I saw my friends falling away. I saw people abandoning the faith. I saw people adopting crazy views of the Bible. It was, it was quite dramatic. Yeah. Um, by God's grace, I was able to sort of keep my head above water and press on until I could get some answers. And it ended up leading me to a, an academic career like, like I'm on now, where I'm actually dealing with some of those same issues. Yeah. Uh, but that is, that is not an exceptional experience. That is a, right. a normal experience. And so what I tell churches and parents is that you've got to prepare your kids for college and beyond in ways that go beyond moral issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this idea that, you know, little Johnny's going to go off to college and I just got to make sure he doesn't sleep around. Right. Um, and well, I don't want little Johnny to sleep around either. And that is an important thing. And we need yeah. to have those conversations. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the chances in modern day college for serious licentiousness are obviously very high. But that is not the number one issue, because the number one issue has to be the worldview that feeds those moral, moral boundaries. Right. And if you've got no worldview, then it's just moral boundaries f- floating in thin air, and as soon as right. they get bl- their, their foundation gets blown up, they, they kick them to the curb. And So uh, there needs to be more, more intentional worldview training at a, at a high school level, and, and even below that, in my opinion, and not just about canon, not just about Christianity and why we believe it and, and why it's true. Yeah, that's excellent. So what is the most asked question that you get in your field of study, like people knowing what you write about, um, what do you get asked the most? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, it sounds sort of like a truism, but I, I really get asked the epistemology question. I get asked mm-hmm. the how you know question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, canon issues are interesting because there could, there's the when question. Um, when did the books get sort of received and when were they right. acknowledged? Okay, that's interesting. And then there's the, 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 the how question process, right? Well, you know, how did, how did Christians recognize these books, and how did it unfold over time and space? Those are interesting historical questions. What's interesting is those aren't the questions people are most concerned about. In fact, I'm convinced those are the questions that bore people most of the time. Mm. Uh, what they really want to know is how do I have assurance, or how do I know what I think I know? Um, and as I said in my lecture this morning, uh, you can know something without really knowing how you know it. Um, or, or, or to put it a better way, you can know something without knowing the grounds for your knowing it, uh, or, or an ability to articulate what you know, or to say it even another way, you can know something and not be able to account for how you know it. Um, and so I think that's the question people are asking. And once you start asking it that way, you can't just give people historical data. Right. And I could all, I mean, it's not that hard as a professor to just sort of back up the dump truck of data and just unload it mm-hmm. on people, right? It's the beep, beep, beep yeah. sound, you know, and you're getting ready to get hammered with it. Okay, we can do that, and there's certain times that's helpful, and I've done even that a little bit this weekend at this event, but I think you've got to not just give people data. You've got to give them the framework to think Christianly, um, a a, a worldview concept of how to slot things in different places, Um, and, and it's only when you have that that you're able to deal with the larger questions. Yeah. Question of orthodoxy, Mike. You've also written yeah. the book, the, the Heresy of Orthodoxy, looking at uh, how orthodoxy, correct teaching, emerged in the in the early church. Got a question just came in this week through the Westminster information desk that was forwarded on to me from somebody in a Bible church. They're actually in another country, but in a Bible church, and they're just starting to really discover the the history of Christian doctrine. And the question was, 
how do we know that the great tradition that was their phrase got it right? Yeah. How do we know that, broadly speaking, yeah, the Trini- we might say the Trinitarian incarnational church, for want of a better the term. The great church. The yeah. great church yeah. got those basic doctrines right. And it's not just a power play by a mm-hmm. faction within the early mm-hmm. church who you know, ended up using rhetoric to exclude those who disagreed from, from the church. How would you, yeah, you that's answer that? That's a great question. I mean, this question is very common today, and it's actually an old question that's gotten resurfaced. So with writings by people like Bart Ehrman and Elaine Pegels and other critical scholars, they've resurrected uh, the writings of an earlier scholar by the name of Walter Bauer. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote a very famous book called Orthodoxy and Heresy in Early Christianity in 1934, Um, and no one really noticed it at the time, but eventually it was published in English, and that, in conjunction with the discovery of Gnostic Gospels, suddenly Bauer's theories took over, and basically his theory was, much as you described, is that early Christianity was was in utter chaos theologically, no one agreed on anything, it was all kinds of debates, no one got along, and the the Jesus you believe in is just the product of the theological winners. And that has implications on canon, too, right? Because yeah. um, that means that the books that we have in the Bible are just the books of the theological winners. My response to that is multifaceted. Um, I point people to lots of different things. Uh, I mean, one, of the, one of the ways I, I deal with that is by showing the early consensus around the core of the canonical books mm-hmm. at a very early time, which shows there wasn't the theological diversity that's mm-hmm. claimed. Um, if it was as diverse as they say theologically, and heresy and orthodoxy were equal, then you would not have attained that level of consensus mm-hmm. around those books at a very early time. People don't realize that these other books, and I'm going to talk about this in my next session, were not nearly as popular as people believe. They're fringe books. People did read them from time to time, but they didn't have any sort of core commitment. So that, I think, is a, is a pushback against the idea that heresy and orthodoxy are equals. The other pushback I give is I, I help people understand what's called the rule of faith in early Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't even really know what that is, but in, in the earliest centuries, and this gets a little bit into the second century book I'm writing, uh, Christians were able to articulate their views by summarizing them uh, in a short statement, and, uh, and we would call that the rule of faith, and it, it was well established across many regions and many church fathers, and shows you there was wide consensus in the early church on the major things. So this shows that, that the heresy, I think, wasn't the main thing at the time. Oh, thanks very That's much. Good. That's good. Uh, if if uh, And I would point people who are listening uh, to the book that uh, Carl just mentioned, uh, with the rise of the popularity of Bart Ehrman. Dr. Kruger, you mentioned earlier, every Easter season, every Christmas season, yeah. Newsweek, all of the magazines yeah. come out with these attacks. Discovery Channel loves these various things. And and as a pastor, I got to tell you, I have people watch those things and have their faith seriously impacted because of a irresponsible Newsweek article. Irresponsible is the right word, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I rebutted the one in 2014, I, I thought it was beyond biased. Yeah. There's one thing to be biased. Everybody's right. biased. Right. It was egregiously misleading and inaccurate. Yeah. Um, so that's, it's, and no one cares, truthfully. Right. Um, it, the, the media, right yeah, they're <laughs> yeah. like, they're fine. You know, that's just the way it's going to be. So, yeah. yeah. Well, we want to uh, really encourage you to make use of the materials that uh, are coming from the pen of Michael Kruger. His material has been extremely helpful as I said, it, it used to be that canonical studies was kind of the preserve of highly technical, um, highly scholarly works beyond the reach of, of a popular audience. And uh, he has produced some material that has made that different. Um, I would point you very strongly to his two books on canon, uh, Canon Revisited and um, uh, The Question of Canon. And then also uh, his blog site, I, I 
really don't visit many blogs, but one of probably two or three blogs that I hit regularly are Michael Kruger's blog, and it's called Cannon Fodder, which you get the uh, the pun there, um, but with one in, and um, it is excellent. It is he routinely deals with these very issues um, on that blog, whether it is engagement with the ideas that are advanced by Bart Ehrman or, or you name it. Th- those are the types of things that are routinely on that blog, and so you'll find it very, uh, very helpful. So um, we encourage you to check those things out. Uh, we'll have links to those um, when we air this uh, episode. So please go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and you'll find some links to, uh, to Dr. Kruger's books as well as to his blog. And Michael, thanks for being with us. Yeah, great to be with you guys. We, Let's uh, do it again. Absolutely. We, we are so grateful for the work that you're doing. Please continue. Until we uh, talk to you all next time, thanks for visiting with us here at uh, Mortification of Spin. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. If you were challenged by today's conversation, we'd like to encourage you to enter to win a copy of one of Michael Kruger's books, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, published by and offered courtesy of Crossway. Head to mortificationofspin.org to enter to win a copy. And come back next week to hear Todd, Amy, and Carl get wrapped up in this bully pulpit topic. The danger, though, of course, is that in reacting against radical individualism, we can end up in a position where we uh, empower, facilitate, uh, enable abusive pastors and abusive pastoral practices to take hold of the church. And it's been interesting over the last few weeks with all the stuff that's been going on about the Trinity and complementarianism. As a team, we've received a number of emails from people describing what seemed to us, at least from the content of the emails, as abusive pastoral practices. I know of examples where presbyteries have disciplined pastors and elders for being abusive. Join us for that next time. And head over to the Mortification of Spin blog to continue the conversation with Amy, Todd, and Carl. And don't forget to enter to win your copy of The Heresy of Orthodoxy. We hope to talk to you next time. And do a lot of this kind of thing. Aaron, yeah, can Aaron I kind of loves that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> kind of tap my phone. Right, yeah. right. I pretty much don't Take a few phone calls. Yeah. This is when you will embellish the account. And, <laughs> uh, make sure my phone is off here. And, you know, if you want to tweet out, I can't believe I'm with the mortification of spin team right now. It's awesome. I'll just feel let free people to interpret that. that in their own way. I can't believe <laughs> that I'm with the mortification of spin team. Wait, I, wait. I can't believe I'm with the mortification of spin team. It's more like you can take that a lot of different ways. I can't believe. <laughs>